Well, um, before we jump into the sermon, um, I want to just give a quick shout out to uh, a team that has been fasting and praying every Saturday morning and planning this, along with some guys who helped uh, today set up tables and chairs, our AV crew in the back, our worship team. If you had anything to do with this service, you guys don't know how awesome things are going to be out there. So like you haven't seen the decor and all that stuff, but I want you just to kind of preemptively give a shout out to these people because just trust me, it's, it's really awesome. All right. So if you helped out in any way, stand up, stand up. Come on, let's give it up for these guys. Awesome, awesome. You guys can have a seat. I got the best team in the world. And um, we're creating a culture here of this ministry being like the backbone of the church. If there's a need, if there's something that comes up in terms of ushers or greeters church-wide, we want to be the, the ministry that provides that. Amen. All right, well, let's go ahead and pray and we'll jump into it tonight. Lord, we just thank you, God, for a moment to come together as friends, as family, and to worship you and to fellowship and to seek your face. So, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, that you would open up our ears. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you tonight about where is God in my suffering? Where is God in my suffering? I didn't want to put that online because I think I thought that if we talked about suffering, like maybe nobody would come. Um, but about two years ago, my wife and I found out that um, we were pregnant. And our daughter, um, as soon as we found out that she was pregnant, there was, we got an ultrasound. And on that ultrasound, the doctor said, hey, there's, there's an issue. You're going to need to go to see a, a specialist. And so I was actually out of the, uh, the country when my wife went to go see the specialist. But the specialist told her, he said, your, your daughter has something called hydrocephalus. And uh, I just want you to know that if you care about her quality of life, um, you should have an abortion. Because she's never going to make it. And if some mir- by some miracle she does make it, she'll, she'll be mentally handicapped. She'll never be able to breathe on her own or swallow on her own or suck on her own. She'll probably only live a couple days. And that news, uh, it hit us obviously like a, like a ton of bricks. And I can remember going from appointment, doctor's appointment to doctor's appointment, looking for any type of good news. And we must have saw about 30 doctors over the course of her pregnancy. And every doctor that we went to said the same thing. It's not looking good. It's not really much of a chance. Don't get your hopes up. Now, I'm going to return to that story. It has a happy ending. So I don't want to leave you, uh, you know, too, too uh, on a cliffhanger. But Tim Keller is a, is a pastor, theologian. He says, everybody is either suffering or at some point will suffer. Everybody is either suffering or at some point will have a season of suffering. And so today I want to speak to you as if the two of us sat down at a coffee shop and right now you're going through suffering or perhaps you're going to go through a season of suffering or maybe you have a friend who's suffering and you just want some words to say to that person. And we're just going to have a conversation tonight. Is that cool? Yeah. So some of you here today, you have a close family member who has cancer. Or maybe you had a friend that died tragically and you're dealing with that pain. 
Or maybe you lost your job and you've been jobless for months and you're trying to find hope in the midst of that. Or maybe you're stuck in an addiction. Or maybe life is going really well right now. But there will be a point where you suffer because in this world there's suffering. Why does God allow good people to suffer? Where is God in our suffering? And this is a question that people have debated for centuries. Literally the smartest minds, best philosophers have tried to answer this question. And I'm going to answer it perfectly in this next 30 minutes. No, not really. Um, But I do want to share a perspective from God's word that I think can help us in our suffering. So if you have a Bible, turn to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible or maybe you're new to church, Job is kind of towards the middle of the Bible, right before Psalms. And it's kind of tricky because it's spelled just like the word job. Job chapter 1. We're going to read the first chapter. And I'm going to kind of summarize the story of Job in the next 30 minutes. But we're going to dive deeper into chapter 1. So Job chapter 1, verse 1. It says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another And said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another 
and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon, your young peop- upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Who was Job? Job lived thousands of years ago, even before the time of Moses. And we think that the book of Job is the oldest book of the Bible. Job lived in a city called Uz, which is in what now is like the modern day northernmost part of Saudi Arabia. And there's three things you really need to know about Job. The first is this guy was of some serious moral uprightness. He was a good guy. He was a guy who feared God. It says that he was blameless and upright. He feared God and turned away from evil. So really, he is an example of what a man of God should look like. Secondly, he had seven sons and three daughters for a total of 10 children. And those three numbers, three, seven, and 10, in Scripture symbolize completeness. So the author of Job, who isn't Job, we don't know who it, who it is, but he's presenting Job as kind of like this ideal person. He's got this complete family. He's a family man. And every morning he would wake up and offer sacrifices on behalf of his children because he thought, maybe my children did something wrong that I didn't know about, and so I want to offer a sacrifice to God on their behalf. That's the kind of dad and family man that Job was. And lastly, Job was a man of extreme wealth. He was really blessed financially. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen. That may not mean much to us, but my man had some serious cash, okay? In fact, the writer says he was the greatest of all the people in the East. He was morally upright, he was a family man, and he was wealthy. He had everything going on for him. If anyone seemed, would seem to have a, a life that deserved not to receive suffering, it was Job. And that's what makes this next part of chapter one really shocking in verse six. Because we're transported to this throne room scene where God, the angels, and where Satan are. And Job has no idea this is going on. Job's friends have no idea this is going on. But Satan is having a conversation with God. And Satan accuses Job of only loving God because everything in his life is going well. He says in verse 11, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So I want you to see something here in verse 11 and 12. Satan tells God, you, God, stretch out your hand against Job. And God says, all that he has, Job, is in your hand. So three things I would say to somebody who is suffering. And let me just say that if somebody you know goes through suffering, don't start with theology. Don't start with, let me explain to you why suffering happens into this world. Start with just crying with that person, loving that person, praying for that person, being with that person. But there's going to come a time where those questions start going through every person's mind of why did this happen? And the first thing I would say from this passage 
is that God is not the author of suffering. Satan is. If you're here today and you were sexually abused, God is not the one who was behind that abuse. God did not intend for your parents to be divorced if they're divorced. God is not the source of a relative's cancer. Satan is. He's the enemy of God. The name Satan literally means accuser. He stands before God's people like Job and accuses them. And he is the author of rebellion, of pain, of hurt, of disease, and of suffering. And Adam and Eve, the first two humans, took his bait and sinned in the Garden of Eden. And because of that, suffering was birthed into this world. And now we see the effects of suffering. We see the effects of sin and the fall of man through stillborn births, diseases, seemingly random farm accidents. And we further the suffering in the world every time we participate in Satan's plan and we rebel against God. Satan is the author of suffering, and we have spread suffering through our sin. So I would say don't confuse your enemy. Your enemy is not God in your suffering. Your enemy is Satan. God is good. That's by very nature of who he is. He's good. The second thing is that suffering is not outside of God's control. And when you suffer, it feels like things are outside of God's control. It feels like he's powerless to do anything. He's not doing anything. And you're just kind of going through this yourself. But suffering is not out of his control. When Satan asks what he can do to Job, God sets some stipulations. He says in verse 12, only against him do not stretch out your hand. He was telling Satan, you can only go this far. Satan can do nothing outside of God's plan. And so your suffering isn't a surprise to God. It's not a shocker to him. It all fits within the construct of his plan. He is all powerful. So the question is, if God is good and God is all powerful, then why does he allow the just to suffer? And this is the problem of evil. And it's what makes this next portion of this chapter one even more maddening. Because here we have a guy who's upstanding, who's a family man, and he experiences the worst day a human could ever experience. Look at verse 13 through 22. It says this group called the Sabians, a group of raiders from the south, fall upon Job's donkeys, his oxen, and his servants. This is an attack on Job's prosperity. And while this servant informs Job, this messenger informs Job about what happens to his cattle, another messenger comes, and he tells him that the fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up the 7,000 sheep and servants. And while that messenger was speaking, another messenger comes and says that this Chaldean group made a raid on Job's camels and servants, and 3,000 of them are dead. And in one moment, Job goes from being the greatest of all the people in the east to the least. And if that wasn't bad enough, another messenger comes and tells Job that the unthinkable has happened. A wind, a great wind has blown over his house and all 10 of his children have been killed. This is not a fictional tale. Job was a real historical person 
And in the book of Ezekiel, the writer of Ezekiel refers to Job as a historical person. And all of this happens to Job in the time of one feast. And what's being described here is suffering coming from all directions. The Sabians from the south, the fire from heaven falling from the sky, the Chaldeans from the north, the wind from the east. It's almost as if anything that could go wrong has gone wrong for Job. And he's left to pick up the pieces. And we didn't, Job's day was so bad, we didn't even have time to read everything that happened. Because in Job chapter 2, Satan goes back and unleashes another attack. And Job's own wife curses God, tells him to curse God and to die. Here's a summary of Job's losses. In one moment, he's lost his wealth, his children, his health, the fellowship of his wife, his self-worth, his sense of fellowship with God, and appreciation for the goodness of God. And the question that Job's left to ask, and as the reader, we're looking at and wondering why. Job's friends, Job has these four friends, and three of them are, are older than him. They, they represent wisdom, the best wisdom of that day. And they come to him and offer their best advice. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I don't recommend you naming your children those in today. But their advice is about as interesting as their names. They start pretty well. Job chapter 2, they start by sympathizing with him, with him comforting him. During that day, you, you didn't speak until the person who experienced the suffering spoke. So they waited seven days and didn't say a word while Job mourned. They look like really faithful friends. And then they start opening their mouth. And it's all downhill from there. And most of us, if we've read Job, we've maybe read the first two chapters or the last two chapters. Because Job, chapter 3, all the way through 37, is his friends giving their advice and Job responding. And there's this Hebrew poetry and we kind of get lost at what's going on. But this first friend, Eliphaz, Basically, his advice boils down to this. The innocent receive good things. The wicked reap destruction. So Job, while he may have done some righteous things, he's received God's judgment for something evil he's done. Basically, Job deserves this. Job must have overlooked the oppressed, the widows, the orphans, and now he's reaping what he deserves to reap. He should embrace his judgment, repent, and receive restoration. I'm not going to nominate Eliphaz for friend of the year. Then you got Bildad. Bildad comes in and he's going to bring Job's family into this. Bildad has the audacity to say that Job's kids deserve what they got. That house falling on them, that was their fault. And Job needs to repent and live right. And everything will be restored. Then this guy's Zophar. Zophar comes up. Zophar says, Job, honestly, you got let off pretty easy. Because you deserve even more judgment than what you've experienced because of your sin. Repent and your life will be restored. You'll be secure once again. Then lastly, there's this guy named Elihu, and he's the youngest guy. He kind of waits for everybody to say their thing. And you think maybe after a couple chapters of listening that he might have some good advice, but 
Basically, his argument boils down to the same thing. Job, you messed up. You really need to repent. And what we see in these four friends is this idea of what's called retribution theology. It's this idea that if I'm good, God will reward me with some kind of blessing. But if I'm bad, he will punish me for how I've lived. And that Job must have done something wrong or else he wouldn't have had a day like he had. Now, Job's friends, as insensitive as they may seem, they're not too far off. And here's what I mean by that. Is in the Bible you have what's called the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And if you read the book of Psalms and Proverbs, you're going to get retribution theology. That those who honor God, fear God, their life is going to go well. Take, for instance, Proverbs 22, verse 4. Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. Simple equation. You love God, you honor him. Riches, honor, and life. On the flip side, Proverbs 5.22, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. This kind of uh, idea of a strict form of, of justice, do good, you receive good, you do bad, you receive bad, is a general, a general principle in scripture. It's the principle of reap what you sow. So if you hook up with a girl, you shack up with a girl, you'll probably end up breaking up with a girl. You take a job that God tells you not to take. After a few months, a few years, you're going to be miserable. You're going to quit the job. And if that's you today, if you're experiencing some kind of suffering because of a bad decision you made or some sin in your life, let me just tell you that there is hope. There is repentance. If you ask God for forgiveness, if you confess your sins, God can restore you and he can redeem you. There is suffering that comes upon us because of our own stupidity. And the beauty of God's grace is if we ask him for forgiveness, he's a gracious God. But Job's situation is something altogether different. His suffering is in a different category. And the book of Job complements Psalm and Proverbs because it provides the other side of the coin. That things don't always fit in this cookie cutter uh, construct of what justice is. And so if you have a friend who's suffering, don't be Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, or Elihu. Provide comfort, have compassion, buy your friend a meal, pray for them. Help them through that season. Don't assume that what they're receiving is a direct result of something that they've done in their life. Job's response after kind of hearing his friends out and enduring the suffering is, is pretty remarkable. I mean, Picture you experience a day like that. I wonder if you and I would be saying this in Job chapter 1, verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. <laughs> he goes on to later say in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Job is a remarkable man. Think about the fact that he didn't even have the Bible. He lived before the Bible existed, and yet he feared God and was humble. But after a few days and months of hearing his friend's nonsense and the, the facts and the reality of his situation settle in, a deep depression comes over Job. And it's really hard to blame him. 
Listen to some of the things that Job says. Job chapter 3, verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb, and expire? goes on later to say, oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Or later in Job 7, 4, when I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night is long and I'm full of tossing till the dawn. Job can't get any sleep. Job thinks it would be better for him not to have ever been born. In Job chapter 9, verse 21, he says, I am blameless, I regard not myself, I loathe my life. You ever said that to God? You wake up, I hate my life. It's a situation that all of us maybe have been in or at one time will be where it feels like the sky is falling down on us. And Job has one question in the midst of all his suffering, Why? And Job is going to go as far as to demand an answer from God for his suffering. He says in Job chapter 31, verse 35, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Job demands an answer from God. And what's interesting if you read the book of Job is that for these first 37 chapters, God is nowhere to be found in responding to Job. It's almost like, God, did you forget what's going on to this guy? Did you like, not think it's important enough to address this guy and all that he's gone through? But God waits to the very end to interject. And what he does is he gives Job a virtual tour of the universe. He asks Job a series of rhetorical questions. Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? When I flung the stars into the sky and created the seas. When I made the lightning streak and the thunder roar, where were you? When I controlled the rain and the sun and the wind, what part did you have to play in that, Job? And then, somewhat bizarrely, he gives him a tour of, of the zoo. Gives him a lesson in zoology. He starts talking about all these different animals, the donkeys and the oxen and the ostrich and the horses. And God asks Job where Job was as God governs the animals and their movement in Job chapter 39. God's rhetorical questions reveal that he has full knowledge. He has full control of the natural world. And Job is hopelessly ignorant of it. And the implication from, Job's, from God's answer to Job is that just as God is in control of the natural world, he's in control of the moral order as well. The problem of suffering and evil. He's got it all under control. And Job is like somebody who's walked into a three-hour Lord of the Rings movie, watched 15 seconds of it, and tried to tell the plot. He's completely oblivious because his perspective is very limited. Job's life in the scope of eternity is like a blip. And God is just, through a series of questions, pointing out that maybe God might know a little bit more than Job. God never answers Job's question of why. And you know, maybe here, you're here today and you've had this question of why was I born with this birth defect, or why was I born 
with parents who didn't love me, or you have that lingering question of why. And what I've found is that God rarely answers that question why. But what he does do is he offers Job an invitation. He extends to Job an invitation in the midst of his suffering to know him more deeply and to trust him. And God offers the same invitation to us. See, while my daughter was going through this situation and my wife and I were having doubts and fear and pain, I mean, my whole life, I grew up in a Christian home. I got saved at a young age. Two parents who love each other, who love me. I was very unfamiliar with suffering. I mean, I had the picture-perfect life. And for the first time in my life, I felt a deep pain, wondering if my, my daughter was going to live. And yet God began to do the miraculous. And over the course of my, daughter's, uh, my wife's pregnancy with my daughter, the church rallied around us. During the night that my wife gave birth, we had a team of people praying in the lobby 24 hours straight, just praying for us. And it was in that moment that I experienced the love of God with his church in a way I never had experienced before. When the doctors did two surgeries on her head, her head was 90% fluid, 10% brain. So to give you a comparison, your head is 90% brain, 10% fluid. And yet, we began to pray, and we began to believe God. And we had this surgery that drained the fluid out of her head. And we went to the doctor after that surgery. He showed us a scan of that first uh, ultrasound with 90% fluid. And then he showed us a second second scan, and it was 70% brain. God had spontaneously grew brain cells. And I'll never forget when we had our daughter, minute and a half, she wasn't breathing, and everybody in that delivery room, nurses, doctors, literally nobody exhaled. And then somebody said, she's breathing, and all at once everybody went, and it was just like the hope of God just filled that room. And this girl, her name, we named her Willow. We named her Willow before we knew all about any of this stuff. But a willow tree has the most delicate branches but the strongest root system. And we've seen our daughter, who's now a year and a half, she's doing everything that they told us that she would never be able to do. Breathing on her own, swallowing on her own, laughing, smiling. And our suffering was an invitation to see the power of God. I told an elder of this church the story a couple months ago. He said, Stephen, the time that I've been a Christian for 40 years, I can count on one hand the miracles I've seen firsthand, and your daughter's one of those five. We saw the power of God. The suffering we experienced was an invitation to see God's love, to see his power, and to see his provision. We had $500,000 worth of medical bills. And a nurse informed us that because our daughter was in the NICU for longer than 30 days, there's a government program that paid for every single dollar of that $500,000. God gave us an invitation to see his provision. When God speaks to Job, his answer is good enough for Job. Job repents. He recognizes how finite he is, how limited his knowledge is. 
that he's just like dust. And God rebukes Job's friends, and at the end of Job, God restores all that Job has. He gives him double the sheep, the camels, the oxen, the donkeys. He gives him 10 more children, and Job lives a full life of 140 years. God can heal the pain of a child who's been abused. God can rescue an addict from their bondage. God can heal diseases and provide jobs to the jobless. See, while we have so much background on on Job and this story, what we don't have is any type of genealogy. We have no idea who Job's mom and dad were or his kids, the names of them. And the reason being is because the writer of Job is telling the story of Job, but he's telling the story of every sufferer. This poetry, you know people don't speak to each other in poetry, right? But it's written in Hebrew poetry because there's something about Job's story that transcends just Job's life. It applies to our life here and now. Job's story is representative of every human who suffers, that we all have been given an invitation to trust God in our suffering and to see him in a way we never would have seen him if we hadn't suffered. And Job's story isn't just representative of all human suffering. It points to a very specific person who would later suffer, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the better Job. Jesus Christ was the true, innocent sufferer, the only one completely without sin. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Our sins put Jesus on that cross, and he endured that suffering even though he had done nothing wrong. And if we are truly to accept this invitation that God offers us to know him more deeply and to trust him, we must accept the one who suffered on our behalf. Maybe you're here today and you say, Stephen, that's great about your daughter and about Joe, but I don't see a happy ending to my story. I remember walking in uh, the home of a family who three boys, their father died tragically the age of 35, and I got called to be there. I just remember the feeling of like, what do I tell these three three boys? What can I possibly say to these guys who've lost their dad? Some of us have gone through situations like that that haven't had a happy ending. And there's a promise for situations like that too. It's in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. God says, Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There will be a day when suffering ceases for those who are in Christ, when death is no more, when sin and sickness is no more and we are no longer left with the question why. And until that day comes, our suffering is an invitation. It's an invitation to know God, to trust God through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? God, we thank you that you have given us your son, Jesus, the better Job, the innocent sufferer who took on on that cross what what we deserved. If there's anybody here who, for the first time in your life, you want to surrender to Jesus or 
maybe you are a Christian, but you recognize you're not living a Christian's life. If that's you, would you raise your hand this evening? I want to just pray for you. Just repeat after me. Just say, God, I'm sorry for the way I've lived. Today I choose to turn from my sin and to believe in you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die for me. I believe he, was rose, he rose again in Jesus' name. Lastly, let me just pray for all of us. If you're, just, if you're going through a season of suffering, I want to just encourage you at the end of the service to come up to the front. There will be a team that will pray for you. But I just want to believe God in this moment that you won't miss an invitation. You know, the worst feeling in the world is when you're invited somewhere and you never got the invitation. I don't want you to miss this invitation. Don't just go through this moment. Don't just survive this moment. But believe God, he's gonna reveal something to you about who he is. Lord, I thank you that you see every person, you're aware of every situation, every season of suffering, and God, you're there. You're here. Holy Spirit, you are the comforter. God, I pray that you would comfort those who are suffering, that you would reveal yourself to us in these situations. In Jesus' name.